All right, welcome to the Dr. Vincent Buscemi podcast, the survival guide for dentists. We have a really special guest, Doug Knoll, lawyer turned peacemaker. And I only make this joke because my wife is a lawyer that I've never heard the term lawyer and peacemaker in the same sentence. Today, we're going to learn about emotional competency. But first, Doug, can you give me a little background how you came across this content? You feel stuck on the financial hamster wheel. You keep paying on your debts like mortgages, car notes, student and business loans, but they never seem to disappear. My name is Dr. Howard Polanski, former dentist, now founder of Cashflow Coach USA. I guide families and business owners through a simple system to dramatically reduce your payment towards debt. You keep your same lifestyle and keep more money each month. A recent client will pay off their house in just seven months instead of the anticipated 20 years. Free 10-minute discovery call will determine if I can help you too. Go to CashflowCoachUSA.com, scan the QR code, or call 512-608-1020 to find financial freedom faster. Are you tired of using ineffective cosmetics and personal care products filled with harmful chemicals? Meet Ancestral Cosmetics and our range of highly effective products rooted in ancestral wisdom and made with edible ingredients such as beef tallow, olive oil, and raw local honey. Check out our best-selling tallow and honey balm for soft and smooth skin or our revolutionary tooth powder made from eggshells for effective teeth cleaning and whitening without any toxic ingredients. Free US shipping for orders over $50 and you can shop now at ancestralcosmetics.com. Yeah, Vince, uh, just by way of the quick Reader's Digest version, I grew up in Southern California, went back to Dartmouth for my undergraduate, came back to California and went to law school, clerked for a judge for a year, and then entered private practice where I was a commercial and civil trial lawyer for 22 years. Uh, in mid-career, I, I was dissatisfied with being a trial lawyer, even though I was very good at it and was making a lot of money. And I went back to school and earned my master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And I left the practice of law in 2000, uh, gave a week's notice and walked away from $10 million and opened up my own mediation and peacemaking practice. One of the problems that I had that even my genius teachers in my master's program couldn't teach me was how to calm down angry people. And I had tried everything, active listening, nonviolent communication, therapeutic intervention. I, I, nothing worked. And I was getting called into high-conflict situations where emotions were driving all of the decisions poorly and people really needed, uh, needed some help. And it, I've been studying neuroscience long before anybody knew what neuroscience was and was pretty up to speed with how, what emotions are and how they're processed in the brain and, and, and how they're developed as a cognitive tool in, prop, in proper uh, childhood development. I was confronted with a mediation in 2005. It was extremely difficult. I had this divorced couple that had spent $50,000 each on an $18,000 problem. Oh my God. Uh, very typical. And your wife would know all about <laughs> yeah. that. And we, uh, as soon as I stopped talking about how the process was going to work, they started screaming at each other, vile obscenities. I, and I mean at the top of their lungs. If there were knives on the table, there would be blood on the floor. And I just sat there and watched them and said, what am I going to do? And the thought came to me out of the blue, listen to the emotions. 
So that's what happened. I quieted him down, and I had the ex-wife, Susan, tell John, the ex-husband, what he was feeling as he told his story. And within three minutes, everything simmered down. She went from being a victim to being empowered. He went from being enraged to being calm. And I was just sort of astounded at what happened. They got through the story. I had them switch roles. John uh, listened to Susan's emotions. And when it was all done, John put his face in his hands and started sobbing for about three or four minutes. I mean, it was intense. And he got up and blew his nose and wiped his face and looked across the table and said to Susan, that's the first time you've listened to me in 25 years. And they ended up settling the case without my help right then and there and walked out holding hands and had lunch with each other. You could have picked my jaw up with a forklift. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I knew what I'd done, but I didn't know why it worked. So I started testing it in other cases, and I got the same basic results. People calmed down almost instantly. And then two years later, a brain scanning study came out of uh, UCLA, out of Matthew Lieberman's lab at UCLA, that where he was scanning brains of people who were subject to this process known as affect labeling. And what his scanning studies show is that when you, you label the emotions of a person who's having an emotional experience, the emotional centers of the brain are inhibited and the executive function of the brain is activated. So it, ha and it, it happens simultaneously. These, and people literally calm down in 90 seconds or less. And they can't help themselves because it's the way our brains are hardwired. So I started teaching it and practicing it. Uh, and then in 2010, with my dear friend, Laurel Coffer, um, we co-founded the Prison of Peace Project and began training life and long-term inmates in California prisons how to become peacemakers and mediators to stop prison violence. And the very first skill we taught them, or and teach them today, are these listening skills, how to listen to emotions, and then reflect back the emotions. And we found that in every single case, every cohort we taught, we started in the largest, most violent women's prison in the world with a cohort of 15 women, and they completely transformed as human beings in five, usually five weeks. And today we're in 15 prisons in California, a prison in Connecticut, 15 prisons in Greece, and a prison in northern Italy, and continuing to grow. Um, just to speak to the power of this, here in California, over the last uh, 14 years, We've had over 700 of our students who've gone through our course released on parole. Not one of them is reoffended. We have zero recidivism. That's how powerful these skills are. So the skills not only help calming down other people, it helps with your own emotions. Correct. You, this is the fastest, most efficient way to gain emotional intelligence. And I talk about emotional competency rather than emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence measures how much emotional competency you have. The way you develop an emotional competency consists of three skills, emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and cognitive empathy. If you practice cognitive empathy through this process of affect labeling that I teach, you will automatically develop your own emotional self-awareness and your own emotional self-regulation. It happens automatically. And you can master this in six to eight weeks. So is cognitive empathy different from empathy? Yes. What's the difference? Well, I guess it comes down to how you define empathy. 
And the way that I define empathy is that it is the cognitive ability to recognize, assimilate, interpret, and reflect back the emotional experience of another person. Now, other people have other definitions of empathy, but I'm, I'm very, very specific that it's a cognitive process that has to be taught. This is not something you just do on your own. You've got to learn how to do it from somebody who knows how to do it. And when you practice cognitive empathy, you engage in a process that I call listening another person into existence because the, the speaker feels deeply validated and deeply heard. It's almost this, you get this relaxation response that occurs in people. Again, it's unconscious. And they just say, yeah, you really get me. You really understand me. Uh, and so it builds intimacy, it builds trust, it builds loyalty, it builds engagement. And in a professional practice like dentistry or law, it builds client loyalty because people feel like their professional is really listening to them and really gets them and really understands where they're coming from. And it's, it's really the most powerful client relationship tool you can put in your toolbox. It seems like the most powerful relationship tool, even for personal relationships. I mean, Absolutely. how many marriages would split? So, can you kind of walk me through how does someone like me, regular Joe, even start developing cognitive empathy? Right. Uh, the it's a three step process. So, when you're going to make the decision to engage in this process, we call affect labeling, a form of cognitive empathy. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to ignore the words of the speaker. doesn't matter what they're saying. doesn't matter how angry they are or how sad they are or how upset they are. You're just going to tune out the words. You don't need to hear it because you've heard it a million times before. There's no new information here. So you're not ignoring the person. You're just ignoring what they're saying. And when you learn how to do that, it frees up bandwidth for you to do the next two steps. The second step is you're going to read their emotions. Now, this is, the good news is that our brains are hardwired for reading emotions in other people. And this all has to do with evolutionary biology, which I won't take the time to explain right now. But suffice it to say that over millions of years, we have, we have developed an acute sensitivity to other people's emotions. And, and most of the information that we get is nonverbal. The problem is that over the last 4,000 years, we've been given this myth of rationality, that what makes us human is rationality, which is totally false and untrue. Um, what makes us human are our emotions. But we have a whole culture and a whole educational system that, that tells us that emotions are weak or evil or irrational. So we never really develop this innate capacity we have to read each other's emotions effectively. The second thing that we have to do is we have to be able to take that emotional data, because emotions are data, just like numbers on a spreadsheet. We have to be able to structure that data in a way that we can access it instantly. And so there's a process of learning how to structure data, uh, emotions as data into seven layers. And the basic layers are starting with the least invasive to the most invasive would be fear, disrespect, I'm sorry, anger, disrespect, fear. Those are the top three layers. Then we get to disgust, Beneath that, we get to um, shame, and then sadness, and then the deepest layer is abandonment. Now, th these seven layers all have a continuum of emotions within them. So, for example, in the top layer, anger, you could be mildly irritated, or you could be royally pissed off, <laughs> and a whole bunch of stuff in between. And so you learn, 
when you learn this process, you learn how to, you learn the continuum of anger, for example, and then you learn the continuum of disrespect. You learn the continuum of fear. So it starts with anxiety, worry, concern, to terror and fright. Uh, and so each of these layers, and once you learn these, these layers in this order, now you've got, a, you've got a database to work with. And as you begin to read another person's emotions, you've got, you've got, now you've got your database, your cognitive database, and you can simply relate what you're seeing to the database and say, oh, Vince, you're really pissed off, man. You're really frustrated. You feel completely disrespected. Nobody's listening to you. You feel completely unappreciated and unsupported. And you're a little worried and anxious. And really, the whole thing is just really disgusts you, the whole situation. And you feel a little embarrassed. And you're sad and distressed and upset over it all. And at the end of the day, you feel like you've been completely abandoned. And you feel completely rejected and unloved and unlovable. And what I did is I just told you what you were, of course, you're not feeling any of those things right now, but you probably felt inside. Wow. Well, as you're telling me, I'm like, holy shit, did you read my journal? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. We all have the same experiences. That's the other reason yeah. why this works so well. We all have the same shared experiences. So this database is perfect. It works with every single human being. And we all have these experiences. So when I validate your, ex your emotional experience by telling you, you, you're disrespected, you're unappreciated, you're unsupported, you feel ignored, those are experiences that we've all had. And I'm validating that experience. And you feel deeply heard and listened to. And now you can relax. Wow, he really gets me. So that's the second step is learning how to read emotions and then use the database to do the third step, which is reflect the emotions. Now notice when I reflected your emotions, I did not use an I statement. And this is a big mistake. People use this active listening crap that has never worked, it never will work, and it's still taught in the therapeutic dom domains, it's, it's taught in my domain of mediation, it's wrong. <laughs> it's all based on a misconception of the work of Gordon Thomas in the 1950s. He, he was a psychologist out of the University of Wisconsin-Madison who invented the term active listening. It's been completely distorted. Uh, I did the research to figure out where all this came from. And what he taught was that you use an I statement when you're asserting your own emotions. You use a you statement when you're talking to somebody else about their emotions. So I might say, Vince, man, I'm, I'm really pissed off and I'm really frustrated. And then you would say to me, Doug, man, you're really pissed off and frustrated. See the difference? It's, it's all speaker focused. So the, another way to think about this is I use the term type one listening versus type two listening. In type one listening, we're focused on ourselves. The listeners, it's the listener's agenda. So I'm gonna ask questions, and I might paraphrase a little bit about what you're saying, but really, I'm, it's really about me. I'm really trying to figure out what I'm going to say next. And I'm sort of half listening to you, half not listening to you. If I'm listening to you at all, it's because I want information from you. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not really focusing on you. In type 2 listening, on the other hand, it's exactly the opposite. My total focus is on you, the listener. And the only way I can get there is by using a you statement. By saying, you're really frustrated, you're really angry. And it's, po it's powerful how this works. So the three steps are ignore the words, read the emotions, reflect the emotions with a use statement, 
Don't, don't, don't use an I statement. Don't ask a question. And once you get that down and you've practiced it, uh, you can calm any angry person, build intimacy, build trust, build loyalty, build patient, soothe patient anxiety in literally seconds. So for the second part of this, we'll say protocol, this, the layers of emotions, if I'm understanding this correctly, Doug, is there always something under anger than always something under disrespect? And does it, I'm not a psychologist, does it always come down to abandonment? Is there yep. always, oh, okay. Yep, it does. And, but you don't always go to abandonment. For example, in a professional relationship, unless you old, old patient or old client that you really have a good relationship with, you probably wouldn't go much past fear and anxiety. But if you're working with somebody that you know really well or you're in an intimate relationship, you go to abandonment because it's the feeling of abandonment, rejection, betrayal, and feeling unloved that triggers all of the negative emotions that are, that are above it. But the reason you don't go there is because it's the most invasive. So you can only go to the level of invasion that the relationship will support. Okay, that's what you mean by invasive. Cause that makes right. sense because if a patient is upset with the shade of their tooth, I'm not going to tell them I know your father abandoned you and that's what exactly. you Exactly. No, no, you're not going to say that. You're going to say, you know, you're, you're, you're in a lot of pain and you're really frustrated. And this is very, it's, it's, it's a little scary about what's going on. And you, right now you're not feeling, you're not really feeling very supported. And it's scary, frightening. And they'll say, yeah, okay. I have personal experience with not using a you statement like you explained and using an I statement, which we were taught in dental school. I once said to a patient, I understand how you feel. <laughs> oh my gosh. They, Took your head off. They, they almost physically assaulted me. They said, I you, have, you have no, you have no idea. idea. Exactly. I, I, exactly. I, almost started, I almost started to cry. I was, it was like 10 years ago. I was so scared. I never seen someone so angry in dental chair. That's right. Never use an I statement. I can't believe it. In professional school, they still teach this crap, but they do because they're idiots. They don't study the neuroscience. Uh, you know, they just teach what they were taught and not very, really not very intelligent people, really, when it comes to communication. We've learned so much in the last 20 years about how our brains process social information, and yet none of it seems to be percolating into professional training at any level. Um, and that's kind of why I'm passionate about this because I, I have seen firsthand the shifts that people make when they learn these skills. It changes everything. I worked with an OBGYN doc who, out of Dallas, Texas. Can you imagine being a female OBGYN doc in Texas right now? No. Uh, uh, insane. And we transformed her practice in, in four weeks. She really got on board with this and practiced it, and her whole practice completely changed. From, from having really unhappy, scared, dissatisfied patients to have and all of her assistance to everybody getting along and, and understanding uh, that she doesn't control her calendar, babies control her calendar. <laughs> yes, so what was her biggest concern or complaint to come to you as a client? What did, Unha what did un Really unhappy clients. Okay. Unhappy patients. And then she learned, and then as we began to work, she said, okay, I've got unhappiness everywhere. I'm in a practice that was, was taken over by a hedge fund or a private equity firm. So I'm just a, I'm just a producer. I'm just a laborer here. So, so I've, got, I've got unhappy patients. 
I've got unhappy assistants. I've got unhappy administrators. Now I got to go to the hospital. I got to deal with unhappy nurses and unhappy case managers over there. Everybody's pissed off. He said, this, this has changed my life. What was her biggest mistake she was doing? She was either apologizing, or she shouldn't have been apologizing at all, or she just didn't have, she froze. She just didn't have a response. She didn't know what, how, how to respond to an angry patient, or how to respond to an angry um, case manager. Or how to respond to an anger. And sometimes you just have to pull rank and say, look, I'm the doctor here. This is the way it's going to be. Which is not very empathic. <laughs> right? and, it, and it never works. <laughs> and it never works. But now she had the tools to say, you know, and all she did was learn how to read the emotions and reflect them. You're angry. You're frustrated. You're upset. You don't feel supported or appreciated. And she learned that every single human being has the same emotions. That's why you don't need, you don't need a huge vocabulary. 30 words and you've got it covered. And when she starts, she started seeing what happened. As soon as she started seeing it, it became a self-affirming practice, and she just jumped into it with both feet and said, "This is amazing. This changes everything." So this process is called affect labeling. labeling. That's the technical term. And when you label someone else's emotions, it moves the their thinking into the frontal cortex, and that's what calms them down. It's a combination of inhibiting. The emotional centers of the brain, primarily in the amygdala and the hypothalamus, uh, it, it inhibits those, the networks associated with those brain functions. And at the same time, it activates the right ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, which is executive function. What happens when we become emotional is that our prefrontal cortex shuts down. We're going to hyperreactivity. We're basically going to react and behave the way we were when we were six-year-olds. And we can't, we can't, you can't think when you're, you're in that state. And what affect labeling does is it reverses us back to a, a, a more normal state, a calm state, where the emotions are not activated and we're able to think again and make decisions. And, and although there, isn't, there haven't been studies yet to, to follow up on this, I think what's happening is that, that I know from, from the work of uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett at Northeastern University that one of the things that we have to do in as children is develop a granular emotional database, words of emotion associated with specific feelings of pleasantness or unpleasantness. And most people don't ever get the chance to do that for a whole bunch of different reasons. So when I'm affect labeling you, what I'm doing is literally lending you my prefrontal cortex and my emotional database for the time it takes you to quiet, you, for your brain to quiet down, for your prefrontal cortex to come back online and start processing the emotional, the emotional experience with a higher cognitive function. And that's what calms you down. So if you want to calm yourself down, same thing. Labeling your, okay. Label your own emotions. I'm really frustrated. I'm really pissed off. You know, I'm furious. I feel completely disrespected. I feel ignored and unappreciated and unsupported. And I'm really anxious and worried and scared. This whole thing's just nauseating. And I'm, feel a little bit embarrassed and shamed. I'm really sad and I don't feel connected and I feel distressed and upset. And I feel like I've been completely abandoned. There's nobody there to be with me and I feel completely worthless and unloved and rejected. Boom. 
For as long as it takes you to say all that, it calms you right down. That totally flies in the face of the Stoic philosophy or even right. British mm-hmm. keep a stiff upper lip. And then do you know who Martin Siegelman is? Yeah. Um, even in his book, he talks about if you just sit and don't even talk about your emotions, eventually they leak out and they won't bother you, which I'm Bullshit. not sure if that's true. But that Bullshit. totally flies in the face. But you're saying the opposite, that it's not yep. complaining. You're, you're, just, you're actually labeling emotions and it, neuroscientifically, it does calm you down. That's right. I wouldn't do this, Vince, if it didn't work. Remember, I get paid big bucks to walk into high-conflict situations and calm people down, usually where there are hundreds of millions of dollars at stake. i got to calm people down right now. And I can't do woo-woo psychological crap. i got to do something that works. This works. It's the only thing that works. No one has ever showed me anything better than this. There's such a disconnect between you were a practicing lawyer between the schools and actually right. real real life. Do you still teach at Pepperdine? I heard that in another yeah. interview. Yeah, I do. I teach I teach uh, a course in decision making under stress and conflict at the Strauss Institute of Dispute Resolution. So it's, uh, it's usually a week long intensive course in the first week of January. And uh, I've taught law at our local law school for many years. I don't anymore. I'm the chair of the board of trustees now. Um, yeah, there is a huge disconnect in education. And I've also taught these skills in, in high schools and middle schools to teachers to enormous effect. I mean, it changed everything. Um, this, is the, this is the skill that teachers should be learning and administrators should be learning to deal with angry children and angry parents. It, would, it completely changes classroom control, where classroom control is no longer an issue. I've seen it myself. I mean, it's amazing to watch. What's happening to, because I have, actually I have four young daughters. What's happening to these kids that they're not learning the vocabulary to label mm-hmm. their emotions? Why, is it because their parents are emotionally yeah, it, unintelligent? It's called, it's called, the condition is called adult normative alexithemia. And this is a chronic condition where we have been trained not to be aware of our emotions in our culture. Emotions are bad, emotions are evil, emotions are weak. Men can display anger emotions sometimes. If women display anger emotions, especially in a professional or corporate setting, they're looked at as bitches. Uh, You know, emotions are considered bad and evil. And that gets passed on to kids. And then kids are emotionally invalidated by their children. you, You probably were when you were three or four years old, a little boy, you were out running around and you fell over and you skinned your knee and you started to bleed a little bit and you started to cry. What were you told? Don't cry. Get Don't up. cry. You're okay. That is the most insidious, pervasive form of emotional abuse that exists. Every child is told that. Parents think they're toughening their kids up. But what they're doing is they're stopping the emotional maturation in the brain. And that is why for most people... They stop their emotional maturation between six and eight years old. This is based on the work of Ford Newfeld, the Newfeld Institute in British Columbia. The guy's a genius. And so we end up at eight years old, six to eight years old, we realize the universe is emotionally unsafe. We can't, we're not free to express our emotions. We, we are not taught how to express our emotions in a, in a, in a um, healthy way. So we stuff it and we start building up big walls and barriers around us. And, and then we start building competencies on top of that facade. But when we get into stress or we get into conflict, we revert back 
to where we were at six or eight years old. That's the, the height of our emotional maturity. And when we start act, we basically go back to the programming that we had at that time without being able to handle a difficult conversation with maturity and, and compassion, without being able to calm an angry person, without getting upset yourself. None of that stuff happens because we have not been trained in it. We've been trained exactly the opposite by our culture. And it's not the parents' fault, they just don't know any better because that's the way they were taught. And it's the way they were, and it's the way they're, this is a, a, a generational problem that goes back for thousands of years. And I'll just give you an example. How, how old are your kids? You got four daughters. Lucky guy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> four daughters. Very beautiful. They are seven, five, and my twins are three. Oh, perfect. So, when you when you're with them tonight, when and it does, you really look for a positive emotion. That's the way the, the way to start. Look for happiness or joy or excitement, and say, "Oh, love, you're really excited right now. Are you really happy?" Use a you statement. Label the positive emotion. And watch what happens. If they, get, if they have a negative moment, just label that. Oh, you're really frustrated. Oh, you're frustrated and angry. And, you know, use, use age-appropriate emotions with them, which is pretty easy to do. And even the three-year-olds will react to it because we start developing, we're supposed to start developing our emotional databases at 18 months. It doesn't happen because we are emotionally invalidated by our parents. So most people, you know... <laughs> Brene Brown did an interesting study of 7,000 people finding out how deep their emotional database was. And the, 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 the average emotions that people could respond to were happy, sad, and pissed off. I mean, that's not, that, that is an extremely low level of emotional intelligence. And yet that's where most people are at. And I totally agree with that. I mean, I'm just kind of reflecting on my life and emotional conflicts and when you deal with people, like you said, they you think they're okay, and then one thing happens, and they turn into a rare a rare wolf, and you're like, holy shit, what, what did I happened? just trigger? And That's you, right. But it makes sense. I'm like clicking all these points together. They somehow converted back or reverted to their six or eight year old self, and now they're eight dealing with a forty year old's problem. That's exactly right. And the way you fix that is affect labeling, but with your children, you prevent that from happening in the first place by affect labeling. And here's the good news. Not only do you become an emotional coach, there is incredible benefit to the children. What the research shows is that if you start affect labeling at the ages that your children are now, when by the time they reach 12, they'll be two grade levels ahead of their peers academically. They'll have the emotional maturity of a normal 21-year-old, and, they will, be, and they, will, they will have incredible resiliency. Even the seven-year-old, five years of affect labeling is going to change her. The three-year-olds are going to be bomb-proof by the time they're hit 12 years old if you start affect labeling right away. And that's what I, the research shows. Yeah, and I currently feel guilty right now, Doug, I'll tell you, because I've have, the only thing I say to my kids is, stop crying, it's yeah. only this. So I'm doing the exact yeah. opposite of what I should be doing. And let me, let me respond to that because I get that response a lot from parents. Don't beat yourself up. This is new knowledge. Lieberman's seminal study came out in 2007. That was what? 14 15, years ago? Yeah, 15, yeah. 14 years. Yeah, and it hasn't had time. I'm the only one out there that's teaching this stuff right now, as far as I know. So it hasn't had time to make it into mass consciousness. So don't beat yourself up. Just be thankful that you now have knowledge of a skill that can radically change your children's lives and make them incredibly 
healthy emotionally as they mature. Because I think that's a major problem now. I don't know if you agree with me that kids nowadays oh, absolutely. are so much less resilient. Oh, yeah. Because, well, and partly it's you know, technology. They're all on their phones. But they've got parents who are emotionally incompetent. So they go to their phones for emotional soothing and solace. Now they get sucked into the social media drama, which just makes things worse. And they're a mess. They're a mess. You know, I'm reading about young men now. I just read an article yesterday about young men who create, using AI now, they're creating artificial girlfriends. And the apps, I guess there are apps out there that they can program the apps so that so it's a per, they get the perfect response. The girl looks exactly the way they want them to look like, and they do. Ex and the AI is able to program itself to emulate the perfect the perfect girl. But it's all artificial intelligence. It's all fake. And so that so these young men aren't learning how to build true relationships with real women. I mean, oh, that's awful. Oh my gosh, I cannot because with a real woman or a real partner, there's. Gonna be back and forth, conflict, That's right. disagreement. That's right, and you have to learn how to navigate that stuff. And they're not learning. They're 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 going to be even further behind than everybody. And the pandemic didn't help either when we cloistered kids in. Not that we had a choice, but but you get parents who don't are not emotionally competent themselves. You get kids who were not able to socialize for three years because of the pandemic, and you've got technology that's substituting for real human interaction, and and we've got a we've got a looming disaster on our hands. So you mentioned you came across this almost haphazardly in mediation. Earlier in your life, you mentioned this already in another podcast that you were previously in another marriage. I'm not sure yes. if you're married now, but you, you right. were divorced. Correct. How has this helped you control or master or validate your own emotions? My wife and I never fight. Not over anything. We can get upset. But as soon as one of us gets upset, the other one Apex labels us off the window ledge and it's over with. And we don't have fights or arguments. And we don't have difficult difficult conversations that we're avoiding. And we don't we have a very deep, intimate relationship where there's deep mutual trust. And also I would call it a soothing, knowing that She's got my back and I've got her back emotionally. And that and that we never have to worry about unpredictability. So is there a step? So let's say you and your wife both get upset. Okay. And you're right now because you're well trained and you live this, you affect label her emotions. But there is a split second in there where you have a choice. Sometimes you're so emotional you forget the choice. You, you can either scream back at her or label her emotions. How do you get to the point at that fork in the road where you label the emotions instead of explode on it becomes It's when it becomes a habit. Okay. It takes six to eight weeks to build that habit. That's all. And once it becomes habitual, the, the beauty of this, Vince, is that as you engage in this practice, it becomes self-affirming. Because when you listen to somebody at this deep well and you, deep way, and they, they are extremely grateful, and just heap praise on you, thank you, you really get me. I've never been listened to like this before. Thank you so much. That makes you feel good. Mm -hmm. Makes you want to do it again. And so you keep doing it because it is self-affirming, and eventually it just becomes habitual. 
And you get to a point where you don't get triggered by somebody else's emotions because you see them as, a, as an emotional being. The reason we get triggered is because we have an assumption that the other person is rational. And now they're acting irrationally. And it becomes unpredictable and scary. And we don't know what to do with it. But if you go to who we are truly as human beings, I look at you and you're upset. I said, oh, Vince is just being emotional. I know what to do. This is easy. And I don't get triggered at all. Even if you're screaming vile obscenities at me, I don't, I don't, it's not my problem. <laughs> but I know, how to, I know how to solve the problem. And so you get this inner calm and compassion and confidence that allows you to know what to say and how to say it and when to say it to any person in any context and know that you'll be right every single time. That's empowering from a dental standpoint, because maybe law is a little different, but we have patients scheduled all week. Right. I know all my dentists listening, there's someone who's on a Thursday at 10 p.m. or 10 a.m. And they're like, oh, my God, this, this person's upset. They're coming in. I'm anxious. Maybe I'll call in the sick work. But knowing <laughs> that you have, and I, I own the business, uh, but knowing that you have or I have can learn the skills to calm them down, it makes going to work that day less dreadful, which is huge for anyone who deals with people daily. That's right. That's right. It, it, it not only makes it less dreadful, it makes it more pleasurable because not only are you attending to their, to their health needs of their mouth, you're attending to their need to be heard and listened to and validated and affirmed. And they feel, they walk out, maybe with a sore mouth because you had to put in a filling or something, <laughs> yeah. but they walk out feeling like, wow, that was an amazing experience. These people really get me. And it may be one of the few places in their lives where they really feel validated, which is sad. You got to go to the dental office to get validated. But yeah, still full service, full service. Right. <laughs> so is our deepest need as, as humans to be heard or loved or not abandoned? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think it's our deepest need is to be heard and connected with other humans. And, you know, that manifests in a lot of different ways. Love is one way that that happens. But just the, the need to be heard and connected to other human beings is, is basic. It's foundational. And we don't, we, we don't, we're not really good at any of that. Be, and, until this, until I developed this, these skills, these emotional skills, you know, having a connection with somebody else was fraught at best. But now it's not. Now we have the ability to connect with anybody. I mean, even I've even got a whole process for having a calm conversation with the politically polarized, which involves this kind of listening, and it completely changes the conversation. Okay, I, can so, sit, I can sit down with somebody who I just abhor their politics, but I can listen to them, and we can find common ground and not get upset. Can you give me an example? Sure. Well, I'll tell you how to do it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> so imagine that you're, you're going to sit down with Uncle Charlie, who is as far from you politically as you can possibly imagine. And we don't even have to go whether it's left or right. But his, his views are just abhorrent to you. But you really want to have a calm conversation. The first thing you're going to recognize is this is going to be a type two listening. This isn't going to be type one listening. I'm not interested in persuading Uncle Charlie about anything. And I don't need to be right. What I need to do is connect with Uncle Charlie and make him feel heard. Even though I don't agree with him, Listening to him and validating does not mean that I agree with him. It just makes him feel hurt. So I'm going, to, I'm going to ask him four questions. 
The first question I'm going to ask Uncle Charlie is say, so Uncle Charlie, tell me what it was in your life that led you to the beliefs that you have today around X, whatever X is, politics, let's say. Now, Uncle Charlie, that's an open-ended question, and Uncle Charlie can start telling you how it is that he came to believe in his views and how they became extreme. And he will tell you his life story. And as he does that, you affect label him. And finally, you get all that out, and you ask the second question. So, Charlie, how do these beliefs help you in your day-to-day -day living? How do they aid you in your decision-making, for example? And he's never thought about that before, so now he's got to think about it. And again, you have to label him. How's he talking about it? Then the third question is, so Uncle Charlie, how do you deal with people who have different beliefs than you do? And, you know, the snarky answer is going to be, well, of course I shoot him. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, you get past that and say, no, no, really, how do you deal with and then typically it'll be, I avoid them as much as possible. And, and, but then you ethic label. And then the fourth question is, so, so Uncle Charlie, how do you think our society should be organized? We've got all these people with these radically different beliefs, totally polarized. How should we organize ourselves to accommodate all of these different beliefs? And that get, that's kind of like getting the crowbar into his head and opening up his mind a little bit to the idea that we have a society that permits and encourages a diversity of beliefs, and maybe maybe that's a good thing. And you affect labeling through that process, and then what happens is he will start he start talking about his fundamental values and beliefs, and you'll find out that you agree probably with ninety percent of his values or your values, that you really don't have that much in, uh, uh, different. You have some differences that can't be bridged, and that's okay, but you have many many more values and beliefs that you share, that connect you much more deeply and broadly than the things that separate you. And that's what happens in these conversations. But you have to be willing to listen from the speaker's point of reference and affect label their emotional experiences as they describe and answer these questions. I think that right there would help this country from splitting in two pieces. Of course. I'm not sure your political beliefs, but me and you have more in common than Trump and Biden Absolutely. Right? I mean, than I have with Trump or you have, or either way. It's because we're, we, like I said, you, have, you share 90% probably of the values and there's just 10% that's politicized out there that we disagree on. Yeah. But I mean, what we don't recognize, what we don't, what we fail to recognize is that certain media outlets and many, many politicians exploit the differences to create fear and distrust and anger and hatred in order to preserve their power position and privilege. And they're actually doing us a huge disservice as a country, but, and they don't care. They know it and they don't care. But we're not wise enough to recognize that we're being manipulated by politicians and news media into having these beliefs. And so we get sucked into it. I couldn't agree more on that. Doug, I gotta tell you, this is, I think my 106th episode. This is the only episode I'm going to go back and listen to and take notes. I've never done that before, but I've never felt so empowered from what I just learned over the past 45 minutes than I do now. So I really appreciate this. Well, you're welcome, Vince. So before we end this podcast, I always ask a couple of questions. The first one is, what is one takeaway you'd want the audience to have from this interview? 
recognize that we are emotional beings, not rational beings. The moment you make that mind shift, everything changes. That's really the biggest, that's the biggest movement. We are not rational beings, not in the slightest. We're emotional. We have a capacity to reason, we have a capacity for critical thinking, we have a capacity for scientific investigation, but that does not define our essential nature. What defines our essential nature is that we are emotional, and all decision-making is emotional. Everything we do is emotional. My That's brain is such a hard time absorb. I'm such a fan of Ayn Rand, <laughs> uh, and my brain is such a hard time absorbing that. I but I, I love it. I, I feel it I heard mean, when you say that. Yeah, no, it's it's just where go where the science takes you. Go where the science. Go out and get on Google Scholar and start looking at some of the papers that are out out there on all this. You'll find, for example, hundreds of papers that describe how all decision making is emotional. And in my, the class that I teach in decision-making, I mean, one of the things that shocked my students is there's no, there's no such thing as rationality. There's no definition for rationality. No one can come up with a good definition of it. Even in the leading text, they say, you know, we don't know what rationality really is. And in fact, decision-making is not a rational process. It's an emotional process. And we can, use, we can use tools to help us make good decisions. But fundamentally, it's an emotional process. I couldn't agree more. One more thing is people need to know how can we find more about what you're doing, your website, your social media, right. the title of your book, all of that. How can they reach out to you? So I do coaching, individual and group coaching. So if people are intrigued and you've got a dental practice, for example, where you want to train your people in this, you can reach out to me and we can talk about what that looks like and how much it costs. You can reach out to me by email at Doug, D-O-U-G, at Dougnoll, D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. Uh, that's the website, too, Dougnoll.com. There are a tremendous number of resources on the, on the website, so just feel free to get on there and jump around and read, read my 200 blogs, articles. and I've got online courses that teach this stuff. And my, uh, so that's Dougnoll, Doug at Dougnoll.com, Dougnoll.com website. The book, my fourth book, is called De-Escalate, How to Calm an Angry Person in 90 Seconds or Less. And you can either get it off my website or you can go to Amazon or Barnes & Noble or all the usual places. It's a Simon & Schuster book. And you can get it on Audible. It's in an Audible version. And it's in five languages now. So if you speak uh, Mandarin or Spanish, you can probably get a copy of it. Perfect. Uh, uh, and the book will give you the basic the basics of what we've been talking about today. But if you really want to learn it, then I, I either take take one of my online courses or let's have a conversation about how I can coach you and your team into learning these skills. Perfect. Are you the narrator in your audiobook? My wife narrated it. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, Perfect. My wife, yeah, my wife narrated it. She did a great job. Doug, I cannot thank you enough for this. I'd love to have you back on. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Absolutely, Vince. Thank you. Thank you.